Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here as always. It's always a special episode when someone returns to us, and I'm very happy to welcome back Paul Revel, who's the Francis Keppel Professor of Practice of Educational Policy and Administration at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He's the founding director of the Education Redesign Lab, uh, and he's also the former Secretary of Education for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. He's got a new book out called Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a Practical Guide for School and Community Leaders. We also talked last time about another great book that Paul's written called Broader, Bolder, Better. Uh, We'll be diving into all these themes, but it's a lot about community education, how to engage more than just the school, particularly as we respond to problems of poverty and other issues of social justice in these days. Paul, welcome to Trending in Education. Mike, uh, it's an honor to be back with you. Thank you for inviting me back. I look forward to our conversation. We've just come out with this book. I have to mention Lynn Sachs, my co-author on the book, who Mm -hmm. uh, uh, did a lion's share of work in helping us get this to market. We're proud of the book. And yeah, we're living in interesting times and uh, a lot of water over the dam since you and I last talked. And so a good deal to talk about. I look forward to our conversation. Yeah. And I was struck by how neatly the two books fit together, where the first book that we talked about, which is Broader, Bolder, Better, was a little more theoretical, or at least our conversation was a little more in the abstract. And then what I I loved about the second book is that it signaled that there is action taking place in communities and cities around the country. And it's a little bit more of a practical guidebook for school and community leaders. Can you talk about what drove you to write really both of these books, but particularly the, the more recent one, The Practical Guide for School and Community Leaders? Yeah, one of the effects of this pandemic has been, I liken it to an earthquake that that happened in our society on several fronts, on the health front, on the racial justice front. And as in the case of many earthquakes, a tidal wave followed. The tidal wave pulls back the ocean floor. And on that floor, there was a reveal for a lot of members of our society of the deep inequities that characterize the lives of so many people living on that ocean floor. Mm-hmm. And many people assume schools were taking care of all these needs from hunger and nutrition to healthcare, to mental health, optical, dental, whatever it might be, to internet, to housing stability, to safety and security. And of course, schools were only a band-aid on those kinds of issues. They're academic institutions. They're supposed to be about learning. And suddenly with schools closed, people realize we got to do something to meet these needs. This is really unfair. And now we see a little bit more clearly why it's so hard for schools to equalize opportunity in our society with all these factors. What do we do? Mm-hmm. So with that level of awareness and urgency blossoming, one of the silver linings of the pandemic, we have gotten more interest than ever before in communities who say we want to come together and organize ourselves to address some of the challenges in creating systems of support and opportunity to serve young people from early childhood all the way until they get a job, to basically be able to do for all young people what those of us who have privilege can do for our own. And as they thought about how they would do this, we wanted to put out a manual that uh, built on our experience at uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education's Education Redesign Lab. And uh, so that was the purpose of the book. Yeah. And and the Education Redesign Lab was founded back in 1997. Is that right? No, 1997 was when I started working at Harvard. But 
I, I worked there for a number of years and took a leave to become Secretary of Education, as you mentioned, okay. uh, for the Commonwealth and uh, taught a little bit part-time, but I was full-time job in government. Yeah. When I came back, I had the opportunity as a senior faculty member to focus on a uh, subject of compelling interest to me. And I decided to create an institute that would take a look at why we hadn't made as much progress as had been hoped with all of our school reform efforts over the 90s and the early 2000s, really the first two decades of the 21st century. And so we felt that we needed to take a bolder, broader look, a more holistic look, not just at schooling, which is central to the lives of children, but those factors outside of school, and after all, children are only in school for 20% of their waking hours, yeah. those factors outside of school that determine whether kids show up to school in the first place and whether or not they're able to bring their best effort. Yeah. And so our feeling was there wasn't nearly enough attention to the ecosystem surrounding schools that characterize the lives of children mm -hmm. and to the inequality that characterizes that environment, particularly inequality brought about by racism and poverty. And approaching that as a community was what was the genesis of not just the Education Redesign Lab, but the idea in our By All Means initiative that we start to work on establishing children's cabinets in communities like these. That's really outlined with some good detail in uh, your new book. And it did walk through the steps that you need, the playbook that we've seen that has worked successfully in different communities beginning with uh, the first point, which is mayoral control, and, and then running through uh, a series of other six different components, but it all centers around this concept of, of a children's cabinet. Can you walk us through maybe those first two steps, how working with mayors and at, in cities is one critical component, and then how, yeah. how that then leads to the formation of these children's cabinets? This is really important. A lot of people have thought about these problems that I've described earlier affecting young people, and they make a natural assumption that we do all too automatically in our society that if there's an issue affecting young people, let's turn to the schools to solve it. But without giving schools any additional capacity to do that work, mm -hmm. and this has been a trend over time, so we have schools doing things even if they can't fully solve the problem about everything from violence in society to teen pregnancy to yep. nutrition to healthcare. We can't keep overloading the schools. So we wanted to make the point that this work of giving every young person the opportunities and support they need to have a successful educational career is the work of the community as a whole, mm -hmm. not just the school system. School system needs help. And so we targeted in the work that we did, we started with a half a dozen different communities, which were in effect kind of laboratories for us to look at if you wanted to construct this kind of architecture of a new system of child development and education, what it might look like. Mm -hmm. And we turned to mayors and said, we're picking some communities and we're looking for mayors who share this kind of theory of the problem that we have, that it's mm -hmm. broader than just what schools can do, and are willing to make a commitment to our theory of action, which is you got to dedicate some political capital and some financial capital, make it a leadership priority for the city, use the bully pulpit of the mayoralty to bring people to the table. So in a children's cabinet, it varies from community to community. There's no template, incidentally. This is not like a McDonald's franchise. It 
happens differently in different places. Mm -hmm. And you bring together those people within government, maybe the police chief, it may be the head of the health department, it may be somebody in housing and things of that nature. And then heads of nonprofits out in the community, philanthropies, business people, parents, groups, community-based organizations, everybody who cares about children's well-being, mm -hmm. get them around a table and the next thing we prescribe is, is beginning to get clear on your purpose and your focus. Mm -hmm. So what we recommend is that communities do a gap analysis. If they think in terms of what are the supports and opportunities in education that young people need from earliest childhood all the way till they get a productive job, Yes. Uh, what are the gaps in that system? Do we have everybody having access to high quality early childhood? Does everybody have health care or mental health care? Does everybody have after school or summer learning? Where do we need to provide supports? And then to begin as a cabinet to figure out how to plug those gaps. Mm -hmm. and, and that work entails not just programmatic collaboration. In other words, figuring out how we're going to deal with the immediate problem, for example, of hunger in our communities, yeah. which typically is responding to that immediate need by providing food. Yes, you have to do that through better collaboration and coordination through the cabinet. But secondly, you need to work on attacking the policies and budgetary commitments that get in the way that cause the problem in the first place. Mm -hmm. Why do we have food deserts? Why do we have people going hungry? And what can we do as advocates within our community at the local level, at the state level, at the federal level to begin to attack, for example, childhood poverty? Yeah. As I was reading through your book, I skimmed ahead to the back to see which cities had children's uh, cabinets. And I saw that New York was one example. And being a parent of, he's not in school yet, but just understanding the emphasis on pre-K education, children's welfare, things that to me make sense politically. I understand why the mayor is talking about it. I found it heartening to understand that this is part of a broader movement that is seeing adoption across the country. And then I guess in some ways, that's where you're helping folks connect the dots and understand what's happening. That's right. As I mentioned earlier, I think there's much heightened awareness and sense of urgency about this. And it's an attempt, the reason we call ourselves Ed Redesign Lab is it's an attempt to construct a new system, which doesn't mean throw out the old. It means schools are necessary, but they're not sufficient to creating an equal opportunity society. Mm -hmm. So what else do we need to do in addition to schooling? And if we're gonna break down the conventional silo of schooling, and we have the silo of healthcare over here yeah. and the silo of housing over here, so on and so forth, we're gonna break down those silos, which are, are ways that we as human beings construct mechanisms for dealing with complexity. Yeah. We can't just destroy them because then we've got chaos and anarchy, mm -hmm. but we've got to build new bridges between the silos and create new systems. So it's partly an architectural design enterprise that we're engaged in working in different communities as they build these mechanisms and try to think differently about bringing to bear the resources and assets and people of the community to provide the kind of wraparound support and opportunity that young people need and that those of us who have privilege are able to give to our children, yeah. um, but others may not be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the next point in the, the steps that you outlined is also building equity and community engagement into the mission of the initiative from its foundation. That resonated with me in particular, reflecting back on this, this previous year where 
in many ways, maybe this type of grassroots activity had already been thinking about equity and racial justice, but in light of the, the summer of 2020, when there was a much broader movement activated through Black Lives Matter and many of the things we saw last summer, how has that impacted your thinking? Are there some examples of how that's connecting to uh, what you're seeing there out among the communities that you work with? I think that, that one of the factors right off the bat, it again, derives from the notion of doing design work. Design work like this, building a collaborative to provide greater opportunity and support to those who are disadvantaged in the community ought to begin with a conversation with those very people who this effort is designed to benefit. Mm -hmm. So I think there's heightened consciousness in our work and certainly in the kind of guidance and direction we give to communities is make sure this isn't grass tops prescribing for grass roots. Yeah. But grassroots and grass tops are together. You need grass tops. You need people who have influence, who control policy and resources and budgets. Yeah. But you also need the voices of the people who you're setting out to improve their life circumstances. And they know better than a lot of us know who are mm -hmm. in the grass tops department uh, what needs to happen and how it needs to happen in order to be effective. Mm -hmm. And too many times in the past, we've been too arrogant to even think about listening. Mm -hmm. Those of us who, in many instances, have created the structural problems in the first place, then come along and say, let us prescribe how to fix it. Because on an ongoing cycle, rather mm -hmm. than stopping and saying, okay, how about we listen to some of the parents mm -hmm. and some of the kids who are going to be most affected by this in terms of what would be most helpful for them. For example, if we move toward creating an environment in which everybody has broadband access and is able to use internet technology and computer technology to learn from home, what do they need? Let's start by asking them the way a good business enterprise would do in product development. Yeah. You're constantly in touch with your customer to say, okay, is this the right product? Is this going to fill your need or not? Right. So we need to do the same thing. And I think that's what the equity is about this. I was on a panel this morning. We were talking about anti-racist approaches in our work as educators and education leaders. And my focus was on judge me not by what I say about who I am and what I stand for, but judge me by what I do. Mm -hmm. And this is fundamentally this kind of work that we're talking about is from start to finish, from A to Z, it's an equity effort. It's targeted at filling gaps that through oppression, marginalization, racism, through income inequality, we have marginalized people in circumstances where they can't possibly be successful on average. Of course, there are always people who defy the odds. Sure. There are extraordinary people everywhere who can defy by the odds. But in general, we've created policies and strategies and structures and systems in the society that marginalize people in neighborhoods where they can't get adequate food, shelter, they can't feel safe, they don't have jobs, they don't have access to good transportation, so on and so forth. And so they're constantly under toxic stress. Yeah. And so if we're serious about all means all, about no child left behind, about every student succeeds, we're going to have to do more than simply provide good schools. Good mm -hmm. schools are necessary. We spend a fortune as taxpayers on schools. We can do better. School reform is important. But school optimization by itself isn't enough to get the job of racial justice and equity accomplished. And mm -hmm. that's the work that these children cabinet need to set up for themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. And that leads into the, the 
fourth and the fifth points, the fourth being activate against like strategic action. So actually take action because there is risk, I think, many times when cabinets and initiatives are formed that they don't necessarily drive towards outcomes. And then right. what outcomes are you measuring is the other thing that I was pleased to see the level of clarity that was provided around some kind of balanced scorecard before you begin undertaking these efforts, actually understand how you're going to measure whether it's working or not. There was a good deal of practicality in the guidebook as well to ensure that A, you're actually doing things, you're not just planning them, and that B, there is some thoughtful design work that goes into understanding how you're going to measure whether things are working or not. Yeah, I think it's absolutely important. It's particularly important in this uh, era of the American Rescue Plan right now, where so much money is coming down to communities and, and these cabinets uh, and communities generally, even if a cabinet doesn't exist, ought to have a voice in how that money's used. At the same time, eventually, you can do so much talking and so much listening and so much thinking about what priorities ought to be. And there are many priorities. And there's lots of political pressure in different directions. And leadership in this chaotic time that we're highly disrupted times that we're leading in, there are some opportunities in a crisis to get things done and bring about transformational change, but you're not going to get everything on the list done. Yeah. So leadership is about defining after doing the good listening, after synthesizing what's been said, after relying on the best knowledge you can get a hold of on, on what's effective and what works, how to spend wisely. And then we got to make those expenditures and then and invest in those programs, see where they take us and evaluate them rigorously. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things in this era that we're looking at now is a tremendous boon to the field of education in terms of money coming down the pike. But in a very decentralized way, mm -hmm. reflecting the suspicion of top down, we're now in a bottom up period. So it's going to the bottom. Yeah. Lots of just individual decisions being made by 14,000 school districts and by superintendents and school boards and principals in those districts. Yeah. We know that some of those decisions are going to go off track. We're going to have misfeasance, malfeasance, corruption, and those will get headlines. Yeah. Those who are spending wisely and making a difference and want to see this kind of funding sustained mm -hmm. after the two or three year period that it's authorized need to have good stories to tell with quantitative evidence, as well as uh, clear qualitative narratives, you know, some stories to be told, yeah. told about how this money was used well and made a difference in the lives of families and children. Yeah. And that gets me to the concluding point, I think, is more about how to make this sustainable, particularly in the political landscape that we live within. So frequently, if a mayor initiates a children's cabinet within her municipality, when the next mayor comes into office, whether it's the other party or through term limits or whatever happens, how do we ensure that this mindset has some lasting effect and isn't pushed and pulled by the, the vagaries of our political climate? Do you have any perspective on that? Yes, absolutely. It's one of the reservations that some people have in the approach that we've taken to tap mayors to lead this initially. But our response to that is, if you're doing sufficiently strong work that provides real benefit to members of the community and their children, then you create public demand. So again, it's public engagement. People support what they help create. Mm -hmm. They've had a hand in creating it. If they derive benefits from it, then when a mayor leaves, they're not going to give the next mayor a choice about whether to do it or not. They're going to demand that it be there. And so that really is a first order principle. A second thing that we've insisted on in these communities 
uh, that we're working closely with is that they build a backbone organization of some kind. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's not enough to just have a club, a group that meets and has goodwill and makes common cause and uh, expresses good intentions once a month. Mm -hmm. But somebody's got to wake up every morning executing on the plans and holding people accountable and raising funds to make it happen. So we know that a community is serious when they invest in a staff member or two or three or half Mm -hmm. a dozen Mm -hmm. to carry out the work of the children's cabinet. And when that happens, that organization lasts beyond the tenure of any mayor. Mm -hmm. But mayors are crucial. It's difficult to do this work if you don't have the top leader in a community saying uh, these issues and our young people are the future of our community. Yeah. And morally, we have an obligation to serve them. But practically speaking, from our own self-interest, for the financial well-being and prosperity of the community, to the effectiveness of our democracy and governance, we've got to do this to make this an attractive city in the future. Yeah. And that's where this tied also to some of your thinking about the future of work and in some ways the existential crisis that we're facing in our schools, but beyond our schools in our communities, to, to your point, where if we're not able to really develop those pathways cradle to career, which which you talk about in many different ways in the book, we're going to be facing serious problems downstream where the the low-skilled work that might be available to people who are not properly educated, not educated to the way that a more affluent child might be educated, they're going to be at a, a disadvantage to get the new types of jobs and the new economies that are going to emerge Can you share some of your thinking around the future of work and how it ties to the economic argument that you're making here? Ever since the Nation at Risk report in 1983, leaders in America have been lamenting the gap between our human resource development system, which is essentially our education system, Mm -hmm. and the skills needed for effective employment in a 21st century economy. Mm -hmm. As a result of automation, artificial intelligence, and so many things being done mechanically now that were once done by people. Routine work has been largely eliminated, and we've moved toward an economy in which in order to be successful, you've got to be able to do high-skill, high-knowledge work. Mm -hmm. There'll always be a certain number of routine jobs that are low-skill, low-knowledge, but that percentage from being 90% of what we did in the early 20th century has now moved to a much smaller kind of single digit proportion in our society. So in consequence, we've got to educate everybody to a level heretofore reserved for an elite few. And if we don't, we pay two kinds of consequences. One is we're unable to develop the economy. We've got employers today now facing a labor crisis where they can't get the people they need to do the jobs. We have employers even pre-pandemic in high-tech industries here in Massachusetts, for example, in in biotech and in in high technology, who have not been able to find the people they need with the skills necessary to do very attractive jobs, very well-paying jobs. We need to get a better alignment there. If we don't do it, those places won't grow and they'll move elsewhere. Mm -hmm. They'll go to other countries that are paying attention to educating people at higher levels. So many countries, for example, are making higher education accessible to as many of their citizens as they possibly can. Meanwhile, in this country, it's virtually getting unaffordable for the average family to send a child to higher education. So we're arguably going in the wrong way. So we have a sort of a moral obligation to do this. We have a financial obligation to do it. We can't grow our economy if we don't do it. And then the flip side is if we don't do it, we have an increasing share of our population who's unemployable. Mm 
mm-hmm. who is unable to get and hold a job that will support them or support a family. And the rest of us will wind up having to support those individuals. And that's a scary prospect because demographically, we're going to get tilted in a way that everything's going to fall on the back of our children to support a whole generation of people who can't work or are too old to work. As a result, the economy is going to be unworkable in this country. So we've got a real stake in making sure that everybody can be a productive part of the economy. And we've got to think more deeply about that than we have in the past about how to get that done. Yeah. Yeah. And I always think about what are we talking about? Why does it matter? And then what should people do about it? So I think we've covered the first two pretty clearly. I think folks coming out of this conversation, they understand what community-based education is, how it takes more than just the school. I think we've covered a lot of what you've outlined in terms of how this has been successful in many different uh, cities around uh, the country. If people are excited by the conversation, if they're activated by this line of thinking, do you have any recommendations uh, in terms of leaning into that activation? Sure. Number one, it's speaking up about these kinds of issues, not only to your friends and colleagues, but also to civic leaders in your community, to saying, we just can't stand by and watch this or act as though nothing has happened and the only job is to get people back to work. Mm -hmm. We've just had this massive reveal about how out of whack we are in what we do for children in our society. And we're asking too much of the schools that can't do it by themselves, even if we get back to normal order here quickly. So I'm hopeful that as we saw a push at the federal level to do more for children and families, it's incredible that the federal government has taken a position to cut in half childhood poverty. That's something that hasn't got nearly as much attention as deserves to be recognized. Uh, We need to start thinking about what are we going to do in our individual states and in our individual local communities as a community to respond to that. And that has both a civic dimension to it. In other words, how are we going to get organized children's cabinet, so on and so forth. And also, what am I going to do as an individual? Mm -hmm. Some of it's simple. In our first book, we told them instances like families creating a Facebook platform in a rural community where families could put forward needs. And if you needed a pair of boots so a child could take a construction job, some other family in the community might have it. We documented one situation and the kid got the boots and got the job and it was a life-changing experience. Yeah. So sometimes it's as simple as that. What can I do? How can I get involved? It's become something of a cliche, but it's nonetheless a truism. It takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. And and particularly if the child we're talking about has a lot of the disadvantages associated with poverty, that really is true. Some of Mm -hmm. us are fortunate enough to be able to raise children because we've got economic and social capital and we can do it largely on our own uh, by purchasing services and supports. But a lot of people don't. Over half the children in U.S. public schools are from low-income backgrounds, over half from racial and ethnic minorities. And so groups with which we've historically not done that well in public education are now the new majority. Mm-hmm. And we better do better by them or we're going to fail as a society. So each individual, I think, needs to uh, take that sense of urgency and bring it forward in their uh, houses of worship, in their social circles and in their civic circles and in their local government. And yeah. things happen on these fronts. Yeah. And you mentioned it earlier. It's been a really interesting year for parents as part of the educational experience. Do you think there's an opportunity there just around the what had been maybe distanced and treated as that's the school's problem, that's out of sight, out of mind? 
now became something that was much more front and center for parents. Do you think there's a new awareness? There's been, there's been a new awakening around education and any opportunities or risks that you see around that the change that we've had? In terms of parents, yes, I see it's one of the transformational changes that I hope will happen in education is that many school systems have had to reach out to parents during the course of this pandemic, if only to keep track of children who've gone off the grid altogether. Right. Other school systems have worked very closely with parents in developing plans for how we're going to support them how we're going to support them and bring them back effectively to school. So we have done now in education something that we gave a lot of lip service to in the past, but didn't really act on, didn't really make a priority, is working, collaborating with families as part of the educational process. Parents, as we've always said, are the first and foremost and continuing educators of their children, but we didn't really make an effort to reach out to them. So I'm hoping that parental engagement is something that we incorporate in a more regular way in the way in which we do business, just as I'm hoping we'll figure out how to personalize education, mm -hmm. no longer make it batch process, mass produce. We're working with a lot of our children's cabinets on developing success plans and individual navigators, coaches for each child. Yeah. The District of Nashville, Tennessee, for its 26,000 students, given a navigator for each child going through the system so that we're treating them like individuals. We're not treating them like some kind of factory widgets. We have a, this whole factory model, one size fits all. But after the pandemic, we know one size doesn't fit all. Yeah. So we've got to develop a more adaptive mechanism. I think technology can help. That's another tool we've embraced mm -hmm. that we have been slow in embracing. So there are all kinds of good things that can come out of this. And so I'm hoping we don't waste the opportunity and simply shift back to just bring everybody back to school, go back to the status quo ante. Yeah. Well, that wasn't working very well for far too many kids. Yeah. So we've got to look forward and see what we've learned in this crisis. What are the silver linings? And then see how we can make that a part of the way in which we regularly do business. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic stuff. As we're wrapping up here, Paul, any concluding thoughts? I think this is a, a very hopeful time in our society, notwithstanding the fact that we've been through traumas in the pandemic to our health, untold suffering, so many deaths. We've had painful experiences in, in the realm of racial justice, and we have now a great awakening that's creating demands and dissension in some ways in our society. There's a lot of attention now to how divided we are and problematic our society is and what's happening to our democracy. We've tended to be better at unifying and coming together in local communities to solve problems. We tend to check our swords and shields at the door when we talk about children. Mm. Uh, so I think there's a hopeful moment to take advantage um, of those things, Mike, that we've learned in the pandemic about working better and working differently. And I've mentioned a few of them from personalization to family engagement, to building better relationships with children themselves, mm -hmm. uh, to not just coming back to school, but rebuilding students' connectedness to, uh, to education. There are all kinds of things that have been positive features of what we've learned during the pandemic. So I think the structures that uh, Lynn Sachs and I are arguing for in terms of children's cabinets, give our communities a structure and the beginnings of a system to think differently, more holistically about our children. All of our children want to be seen, to be understood, to be responded to, and to be given what they need inside and outside of school in order to be successful. And that's what we're trying to do through the children's cabinets is to build a cradle to career pipeline that prepares 
not just some of our children, but all of our children and all means all in order to be successful. So that's where we're headed. I, I think society is more embracing of this concept and movement than it has been before. So I emerge hopeful. And I think many of us are exhausted uh, from this time and battered if you've been in a position of leading school systems, but that doesn't mean it's time to stop or let down or just go back to what was comfortable. we got to move forward. And uh, hopefully we've provided some uh, direction and assistance in doing that. That's fantastic stuff. Paul Reville from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Education Redesign Lab, co-author of Collaborative Action for Equity and Opportunity, a practical guide for school and community leaders. Wonderful having you on the show, Paul. Thanks very much, Mike. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you again. And our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed what you're hearing. If you did, subscribe, tell a friend, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education. Thank you.